Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grilling JR with the voice of wrestling, Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? I'm good, Connie. Living, living a, a blessed life, I can tell you that. Last week was a very aggressive week, uh, being, uh, you know, in, in Charlotte and then being in uh, Baltimore then taking a three and a half hour flight home on Southwest where my knees are right under my chin. I felt like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in the, in the in a pilot seat on an airplane. My, I was all legs and my legs were not long. So it was, it was, uh, it's been good. You know, it's good. And then you get home Sunday night, uh, yesterday or today, the, uh, temperature dropped 46 degrees here in Norman. So, uh, it's colder than hell. Now I look on my, my iPad to see what the weather's going to be like. The next go around is, I guess, if I've got to say, Conrad, winter's here. Yeah, winter is here. And we appreciate all of you being with us last night in Nashville for both the AW show and our super show with Tony Schiavone at Zany's. And uh, thanks again for supporting us at Baltimore, StarCast 4. You had a heck of a panel with John Moxley. Of course, uh, we had a lot of people talking about Jim Crockett coming back and Robocop was walking around and. There was a couple of ding-dongs upstairs and the great Muda was there and Sting was in the red, white, and blue. And it was a fun time had by all, but coming out of the weekend, what most people were talking about was the violence in the last match on the full gear card, Kenny Omega and John Moxley. It was old school, no holds barred lights out last match on the show. And man, they pulled out all the stops, lots of crazy violence that we hadn't seen in the mainstream in a long, long time, if ever. Uh, big stunts with barbed wire and peeling off the padding and, uh, the, the glass and just lots of violence. Uh, and for whatever reason online, some people were pretty vocal about it. Uh, what'd you think? You grew up in a hardcore environment back in the day. It wasn't uncommon for you to take the ropes down and replace them with barbed wire. What'd you think <laughs> about this one? Well, uh, I tell you, this is from a guy that's uh, broadcast a 20 man first blood battle Royal where. 19 men bled and the last guy standing without blood was the winner. So I understand hardcore. Am I a hardcore aficionado? 
probably not. It's probably not my, my cup of tea. Now, do, do I hate it or dislike it? No, not absolutely not. It's just not what I, if I was booking, I would, uh, probably not, I'd probably steer away from that presentation, but obviously, uh, if AEW plans on having another lights out match, it should be a year from now, uh, or, or, or somewhere in that neighborhood. I'll give a lot of distance to let this thing set in and, and breathe. I was actually surprised that, uh, it was so panned by some people. Uh, I, I listened, uh, on Monday to busted open radio, which I, a regular listener to those guys and, and I love their work and they help the business. Uh, and, and, you know, Bubba Dudley has some interesting ideas and Tommy dreamer and Dave LaGreca, they all had interesting ideas. I couldn't say I disagree with anything they said, but, uh, I was just kind of surprised because as I told you before we started recording, it's hard for me to, I can bitch and moan about some creative, uh, but boy, these guys put out so much effort. They put their bodies through so much that it, I can't, I don't have the, I don't have the, have it in me to come forward. So, well, the match was terrible and the, the guys are lazy and you know, it just didn't work. It's nothing like that at all. I, we should have known it was going to be, I mean, Moxie told us on Wednesday, what he's going to do. The lights out should tell you what they're going to do. It's not sanctioned and you know, they're going to come up with all kinds of crazy stuff. So, and they did, but I, I, I didn't have the problem that some people had with it. Uh, and, uh, I took my hats off to those guys for working their ass off. And, and they look, they also followed Jericho and Cody. Nobody's talked about that aspect of this whole presentation. So they followed a five-star match in my view. Uh, I thought Cody and, and, uh, and Jericho had a amazing presentation and I loved that match. And, uh, so, you know, that was, that was hard to follow too. So I, I thought we had a nice night on Saturday night, you know, Tony was gone and working this, uh, commitment with the Georgia Bulldogs, uh, producing a radio broadcast for the football games. And, uh, so X Cal and I went two man booth. I enjoyed that. You know, he, uh, he's a real good talent. Uh, X Cal was a good guy. Uh, and it's, and is really getting, uh, uh, really getting in is finding his place. And that sounds right, but he's finding his, his, his voice, shall we say a really smart guy. And so I thought we had a nice night. You know, uh, I was reading their notes about Gordon Soley and what Meltzer wrote about Soley and my, me pairing up in that, <clears throat> uh, in a show we're talking about today, Clash of Champions nine. And, uh, it kind of reminds me of the, of the stuff I've been getting a little bit on, online, but you know, there's a young audience that, uh, that's criticizing my work and I don't have a problem with them criticizing my work. Everybody's opinion is as good as the next guy. That's one thing. I, I don't want people that are following me on Twitter to jump on and beat up on some people. Cause if you look at their, their Twitter information, they have a picture, they're young kids, younger kids, teenagers, early twenties. And they have, you know, anywhere from zero to 20 followers. So it's not as if these people are, are learned, experienced, long-term, uh, you know, fans to the level that they can critique somebody. But you got to, you know, you try to be nice to them or make fun of, make, not make fun, but have some fun with it. I had some little girl said I should retire. Uh, and I said, well, would you buy me a nice retirement gift? <laughs> so what are you going to do? But that's how it is. So we'll talk about that. When we get the Gordon part, but it's, that was, that was a little dis, disheartening when you work your ass off Conrad for 40 effing years in the business that you love, and you're still trying to do it. 
it's it's a little disheartening when people that don't know your work or know how hard it is to do this work uh, uh, are gutting and quartering you. It's just not a it's not a it's not a, a fun thing. But I've got to get past that. I'm too damn old to worry about it, and I can only do my best. If you don't like my work, folks, don't don't listen to it. That's all I can tell you. Move to goddamn television. Hell, I don't know what you're going to say because I ain't quitting. I ain't retiring, and I'm not going to leave my spot. So, uh, and I think most people would agree that's the way to do it. So, anyway, I, I like the show a lot. Uh, there's a lot of good things on the show that I that we could talk about, but I thought that the whole team, the production team, the creative team, uh, the talent themselves, obviously, uh, rose to the occasion and put together a real nice show. So, I was happy to be a part of it, and uh, I, I can't wait to see uh, how we continue to build for our next uh, big shows coming up in a, in a few months. But Every, every Wednesday night, man, I tell these, these young kids, boys, Wednesday, Wednesday night's playoff night. We're in the playoffs every Wednesday night, and that's how we got to approach this damn game. Every Wednesday night, we got to bring our best, whether we like our creative or we don't like our creative. If you don't like to play the coach calls or, or don't, you do or you don't. It doesn't matter. we got to go out there and win because every Wednesday night's a playoffs for AEW, and I like that. Well, and I'm liking what we're doing here on the show. We've had a lot of fun. Next week, we've got something fun for you as well. We're going to talk about Survivor Series 1995, which has got one hell of a main event on top. Bret Hart and Diesel for the world title and lots of uh, elimination matches along the way for that one, including, believe it or not, a tag match that was a dark match, which we'll talk about on the show. The Smoking Guns and the Public Enemy and a singles match with Goldust and Bam Bam Bigelow. But somebody who we've seen a lot of this year, uh, Medusa is on that card as a Lundra Blaze. Aja Kong is on that one. Bruce Pritchard's brother, Tom, is wrestling here. It is an interesting show, to say the least, including Shane Douglas as Dean Douglas. Um, you don't want to miss next week, Survivor Series 1995. Of course, in November, we got a hit of Survivor Series. But what we're talking about today is arguably one of the greatest matches of all time. And believe it or not, tomorrow is the 30-year anniversary. Of course, we're talking about Clash of the Champions 9, the New York knockout. It went down November 15th, 1989 at the RPI Fieldhouse in Troy, New York. The uh, building was set for 5,800. 4,000 fans are actually there. We do a 4.9 rating and a 7.8 share, which is roughly 2.5 million homes. And the WWF is airing a replay for the second time of their Survivor Series head-to-head just to fuck with the Clash, and they get a 1.4 rating and about 700,000 homes. You know, I know you watched this show back for the first time in a long time. It's one of mine and your favorite main events ever. Uh, But when you you think back about, you know, the WWF counter-programming your Clash of the Champions special with a replay of their pay-per-view, Man, some of that stuff just feels like uh, what's going on today, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, that's, you know, Vince has got a strategy. And it's, he's utilizing the same strategy over and over because in his mind's eye, it works. Uh, so, but I, the number that the Clash got that night, I mean, uh, 2.5 million is, 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 a, is a good number. Today, it's a good number. Uh, almost a five rating, like that. So, uh, it just, it's not surprising. That's how you need know, fragment the audience, take the audiences, the, the primary audience eye off your ball and put it on their ball. 
even though they gave away a pay-per-view for free uh, that people have previously paid good money for just days earlier. And I thought that, that to me, was always been a sore spot philosophically. But uh, it's not unusual that they're going to do all they can to stymie the growth of the clash at that time. Uh, what the first time they did it. And it's no different than they're trying to stymie the growth of AEW now. And I'm not going to get some damn tirade about WWE and the battle. And this guy said that, and this guy said this and all that. I don't care. It's not, and I tell our guys that it isn't, we, you don't even have to watch that shit. If you don't want to, I'm a wrestling fan. So I watch, but I'm not, I don't watch as much as I used to because I'm on the road a lot. So, uh, I, I just don't, uh, I just don't see the, it's, it's tough to say nice things when you know, somebody's trying to put your ass out of business. Well, nobody's going out of business and nobody's got anything negative to say about this show. This particular clash became only the second big show to earn a 100% favorable rating in the observer's telephone poll. As of Monday, after the clash between the letters and phone calls, the clash drew 395 thumbs up and zero thumbs down with calls coming in at a record pace, heaping mountains of praise, not only on funk, but on the show overall. The only other 100% favorable rating was Wrestle War 89 on May 7th, also headlined by Ric Flair. But that time he was taking on Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And this is just uh, unheard of where it's unanimous. Everyone loves the show. Something that uh, I think everybody loved on paper is you and Gordon Soley doing commentary. You briefly touched on that a little earlier, but Meltzer would write, uh, Soli and Ross handled the announcing. It was a unique pairing of the best announcer of the seventies with the best announcer of the late eighties. Ironically, the main event was a similar matchup. The chemistry between the two appeared awkward at first. It was the first time they had ever worked together on a play-by-play broadcast. Soli was forced into doing the color, which was somewhat new for him. And occasionally they stepped on each other's toes. However, by the end of the show and in the last match in particular, the pairing gelled. I think that's a fair assessment. You know, Gordon Soley had been known for being a play-by-play guy. You had as well. How do you think the, uh, the pairing went? Well, I loved it because I was a Soley Mark, uh, and I was primarily responsible for getting him work and bringing him back to WCW. I thought the business owed him that. I thought we should respect people who have given their lives and their time and the years dedicated to building our business. And those of us that followed Gordon and the, and the wrestlers included, uh, he deserved better. And so I can, and so I can convince uh, WCW that we should bring Gordon back. And, uh, I don't know what the story was on how Gordon, how we got together for that show. I, I endorsed it. I wanted to do it, but I'll take exception with Melser's uh, comment about Gordon was forced to do play by play. Gordon did not want to be on the show. And he sure as hell did not want to be responsible for, to be the lead guy and to be the play-by-play guy. It was too much. Uh, to be honest with you, he, should, he had a severe drinking problem, as a lot of people know. And uh, I'm not so sure that Gordon was a regular viewer of all of our product. So uh, he, he wasn't forced to do anything. Uh, to me, he was like Keith Jackson or, or Lindsey Nelson or... Any of the great broadcasters, of course, today's era of uh, Marv, Al- not Marv Albert, of course, and uh, all these cats, you know, they're just uh, 
he's, he was, the, he was the guy, he was my hero. And I felt poorly and bad that our business had turned her back on him. And I didn't think that was fair. So when I get criticized about being too old or you should retire or you should have another stroke, it pisses me off. It shows a rampant disrespect for older people. And I never thought I would get so old that I would be a victim of that, but it's bullshit. And we should respect everybody, everybody. Uh, and the age thing is, uh, it's, 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 it's played out. It's really played out. So Gordon wanted to do, Gordon did color. He was reluctant to do that. But, uh, as the show went on, he got more comfortable because he was like me or anybody else. You don't want to make a mistake. You don't want to screw the broadcast up. You don't want to sound bad. And, uh, I thought as the show went on, he got, he found a rhythm. He and I found our rhythm. It was, a, it was, it worked out really well. It's one of my favorite nights on the job I've ever had. I got to work with my hero and he got to smile. He had a twinkle in his eye and, and I'll guarantee you when we were done, we had ample cocktails, uh, to celebrate surviving that, uh, that live broadcast. I thought he did great. And, and I'm, I'm so privileged to be able to say that I worked a live, no net. Here we go with Gordon Sully. It's one of my favorite moments. So we're on the heels of Halloween Havoc 89, which we just recently talked about. Uh, that got a 1.7 pay-per-view buy rate, this long and brutal feud, which is going to wrap up the year for Ric Flair, arguably his best in-ring year ever, as far as what was on television. I think Flair would probably say his best years were 84, 85, 86, but in 89, man, he is just barn burner after barn burner with Ricky steamboat to start the year, a trilogy in fact, and now he's wrapping the year up with Terry Funk. And this brutal feud is going to wrap up here at clash of the champions with an, I quit match on the heels of that Halloween havoc Thunderdome cage match. Let's talk about some news and notes as we head into this show with this epic main event, Tommy rich is going to suffer a broken eardrum and he's 30 stitches. This comes after a miscue in a match with Lex Luger on October 30th in Gainesville, Georgia at a TV taping. And because of that, the announced Muda rich TV title match. That was supposed to take place on TBS, didn't take place, and instead Muda beat somebody else with Rich in the corner. Man, a broken eardrum doesn't seem like the most common injury in wrestling. What do you remember about Tommy Rich here? I think he got potated. You know, an uh, inadvertent shot, errant shot, a uh, live, live round, and they popped him in the ear. And I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often. Uh, but, you know, I don't know if Lex was out of position. Uh, Clumsy Tommy was in the wrong position. I don't remember that detail back from 89, but I do remember the, the incident. And, uh, basically it was just a, uh, a, a, as I remember, it was just a shot to the, that went awry and uh, friendly fire, so to speak. The other thing that's being reported in this era is that there's been another change in the Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson situation. That's word, right. As of press time, Blanchard is no longer coming into the NWA. Anderson is set to debut at center stage in Atlanta on November 20th after finish up, finishing up on Thanksgiving night for the WWF. His television debut as Ric Flair's big surprise will air on December 9th and Anderson should be hitting the house shows starting on Christmas day. As far as Blanchard, everything is now up in the air. 
NWA officials are claiming that hiring Blanchard right now could be a potential PR nightmare. So they're backing off the official reason given by the WWF for dismissing Blanchard was that he failed a drug test and the NWA felt it could put them in an embarrassing position. If word got out, they hired someone that the WWF had fired for using drugs. I think it's so bullshit. That's so stupid. I mean, you know, it's like we're going to make headlines. This just in from Atlanta. They have hired a man that has been busted in WWF, a known haven for steroid abuse. You know, come on. We needed talent. If a guy made a mistake, he made a mistake. You give people second chances in life. Uh, and we should have done that. I thought it was so stupid. I had, I remember arguing at length, uh, about that deal. Tully and Arn were money and we can't for, turn the other cheek and forgive. And you're going to drug test the guy going forward. Sure. Do that. But getting back on the team, try to rehabilitate things. And if somebody says, well, did you hire this guy from WWF? We sure did because he had a great record here before with no problems. He stubbed his toe. He made a mistake and we're giving him a second chance to resurrect his career. Now, next question, but that wasn't what happened. They run. These guys could, they, their balls will fit in the temples there, man. They could stand back in their little rooms and, and they could do the thing and, uh, you know, away from everybody. They didn't, you think anybody in, in that upper management thing, they'd talk to Tully. No, they just didn't want to hire. They just ignore his calls. It was bullshit. Well, name names. Who was it? Who's nuts would fit. Well, Herd's the guy that he screwed a whole, the, everything up. I know you tried to get in for one of his, one of your shows. I think that'd be a hell of a hit. You talk about a Q and a that should sell tickets. Uh, I don't want to be a part of it, but bottom line is, uh, he, he just, he influenced a lot of bad decisions and I don't, and I still will say, and a lot of guys will, that, that worked there with me at that time would say, no, you're wrong. Jr. He was a bad guy. I don't think in his heart of hearts, he was a bad guy. I just think he was, he had absolutely, uh, substandard product knowledge for the job that he had. And how many times can we all say we've seen that not only in wrestling, but in football coaches, all kinds of things. How'd he get that gig? Well, I don't know. He was friends with Jack Petrick, who was a, a big shot. The thing about, you have to remember Turner's people at that time wanted nothing to do, did not want to be married or didn't want to touch the old tar baby thing, uh, by being associated with wrestling. The wrestling people were put in the South tower on the 12th floor and we rarely had company. Nobody dropped by to see Aunt B and Opie. We, we, uh, we, we were, we were like stepchildren. And so when the, it just, it's not, it was, we felt uncomfortable. You felt like you weren't wanted, but Ted wanted us. And that's all that mattered. Ted wanted us. And of course we got, we got some decent ratings. Look, that rating, that clash nine, uh, Conrad, that's a good number today. That's a good number today. So I don't know, man, I, I, I felt badly about that, but Turner in, or excuse me, uh, Mr. Hurd in, in, uh, influenced a lot of decisions and he'd take the path of least resistance. If he fully realized how valuable Tully and Arn were to us when we needed players big time, then he would have, he would have given uh, Tully that second chance with some checks and balances built in. And we, we, the, we, as a company would have been better off for it. Were you able to speak up at the time and say that, or was the climate in your position, not where you felt like you could do that? Absolutely. I thought, Hey, 
that's the thing about you know, her and I spent a lot of time together. Cause as I said before, when the booking committee would disperse, they went home. Uh, and, and normally you could tell what time their flights were at, 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 in Atlanta, because they always left about an hour and a half, two hours for their flight. They had to go home. That left me oftentimes because I lived there. I didn't go home. I wanted to go home, but I lived there. So I spent more time with her than I probably deserved. I paid my pittance. And then, so the guys thought, you know, some of the guys said, well, JR's got this, he's kissing her's ass. I wish, I wish you knew the truth. Why don't you stay over a few nights and come and go to the post booking meetings with her so you can explain to him what we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish. It was like talking to a, a junior high person. So, uh, you know, I, I don't hate the guy, but boy, he screwed up a lot of things because he, he was the wrong man for the job at that time. Hey man, let me give you a little life hack just in time for mother's day and father's day. I'm talking about paintyourlife.com. That's the place where you can get a gift that mom or dad will never forget. Real quick. Do you remember what you got mom or dad last year for mother's day or father's day? Well, here's how you give a gift that they'll never forget. You find something that's meaningful, something that's personal. Maybe we're talking about their mom or dad. Who's no longer here. Maybe it's about a long lost relative. Maybe it's about their favorite pet. Who's no longer with us. Maybe there was always this dream that mom and dad were going to vacation to some exotic tropical Island, but they never quite made it there. Well, all of those dreams can become reality at paintyourlife.com. You simply upload those photos. You can even use a photo right out of your phone. They can even help you combine photos to create one unique memory. You'll pick the artist. You'll even pick the medium. Hey, do you want an oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even pick the frame. The whole process is less than five minutes to get started. You can get it in as little as two weeks, but along the way you work hand in hand to ensure that the artist is nailing it. They're getting exactly what you wanted and you're going to get that reaction you wanted from mom or dad. I'm telling you, this has been a home run for me. I've used it for my mom, for my dad, for my father-in-law, for my cousin, for my wife. It's great for any occasion, but with mother's day and father's day right around the corner, how do we show the people who gave us everything that we really care? I don't think you can beat a meaningful gift like this from paintyourlife.com. And if you're looking to give the best and most meaningful gift you've ever given, paintyourlife.com can hook you up. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. You can get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now to get this special offer, just text the word Ross to 87204. That's Ross to 87204. Text ROSS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Well, let's talk about who's the right man for the job. Meltzer would write, after at least two shoot comments on recent television interviews, it's becoming something less than top secret that the number one most divisive point right now in the NWA is the nature boy, Ric Flair. 
The TBS organization has decided it wants to build the promotion around Lex Luger and Sting as soon as possible. And now Flair may be in the biggest fight of his career just to stay on top. This is going to turn into a major issue in 1990 and one where there is no correct answer. Instead, it's one of gut feelings. I can sit here and give you plenty of reasons why Flair should be kept as the top man in the promotion, but I can also sit here and give you just as many reasons why he should not be. I've heard arguments from both sides and there are logical reasons for each point of view and some reasons that probably have as much emotional and personal connotations rather than what would be best for business. And there are very few actual facts to this. While quality of work can't be called an actual fact right now, we'll right now we'll now we'll dispute the statement that flair is the best worker in the NWA with Falk on the sidelines and steamboat at home. Nobody's even a close second. The fact is Ric Flair is 39. He turns 40 on February 25th. Luger's 31 and Sting is 30. This is also a fact. Measuring a promotion's success can be determined by house shows, television ratings, and pay-per-view buy rates. House shows are poor. TV ratings have rebounded strongly as of late. And pay-per-view has stayed surprisingly steady. The real subject is age, however. Arguments can be made in two ways about this one. Athletically, today, age is not a factor. Neither Sting nor Luger will be close to Flair as a performer until he shows signs of a decline, and those signs aren't there right now. As for marketability, that's another story. If you look at the top performers in action movies, the hottest guys are Chuck Norris, who is much older than Flair, Schwarzenegger, who is older than Flair, Stallone, who is around the same age. Hollywood isn't moving those guys out this year, nor is the WWF moving out Hogan, who was just three years younger than Flair. But there are wrestlers who have drawn more money in their 40s than in their 30s. Bruno San Martino, Nick Bockwinkle, Buddy Rogers, Gene Kanitsky, Fritz von Erich, Luthez, and Vern Gagne all pop into my head without any time thinking. At the time, today's wrestling business is more of a youth-oriented business than in years past, and anything that worked prior to 1985 is almost considered irrelevant today. Based on what I've seen as of late, I've got a good deal of confidence in Luger, not nearly as much in Sting as far as being the top guy, but I believe Luger could pull it off. So uh, there's the the writing on the wall from Mr. Dave Meltzer. Mm-hmm. What were you thinking? You were privy to some of these conversations with Heard. Was Heard thinking? Luger's yeah, youth, 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 Conrad, youth. They're pretty. They're young. They got great bodies. Not that Rick didn't have a great body, but he was never he was never the greatest wrestler in the world for his physique, even though his physique was excellent. Uh, it's another same deal. Uh, how can a 39 year old who is the best wrestler in the world, the best wrestler in the world, not a, not one of the best wrestler in the world. We got him on our team and he can make everybody he's in the ring with better. He would make Luger. He would make sting. If given a long-term opportunity to tell good stories and, and flesh that out, uh, that's how stupid it was. I mean, it's almost absurd to talk about it and try to explain it because I can't explain it and give WCW any credence as to that they even came remotely close to making a right decision. It's back to that same totally darn thing, product knowledge. You can't take the best wrestler in the world at age 39 and start taking a dump on him. And that's kind of what happened there. And I just thought it was again, stupid flair. You know, uh, uh, fair was loved by the TBS brass, uh, but heard believe that, you know, he had to get the jump on WWF at the time with Hogan, let's get younger. 
Uh, and so there was no good reason for it. There is no good reason for it. folks. Listen, folks listen, listening today, a good reason for what the hell happened. It was just stupidity, but you don't, it's like taking, what would you think Robert Kraft ever thought this way about Tom Brady? Well, you know, coach Belichick, he's getting older. We got this, uh, we set that one kid at Frisco, that Garofalo kid. Do we, what are we going to do now? Well, I'm going to play, I'm going to play Brady until he breaks down. But we, we might want to be drafting a quarterback next year. You prepare for that transition, but you damn sure don't take Tom Brady and put him on the sideline. The same as you don't take Rick Flair and, 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 and deep, deep, uh, emphasize him. It just makes no sense. Let's keep it going. Let's talk about George Gonzalez. The AJC is going to report that the NWA signed the seven foot six, 380 pound member of the Argentina national basketball team. He was originally a draft choice of the Atlanta Hawks, but was deemed to be uh, neither in good enough condition nor tough enough under the boards to survive in the NBA. And Meltzer would say that Jim Ross of the NWA had been pressuring the group to sign the guy and try to market him as a new and much taller version of Andre, the giant. Of course, guilty. I'm guilty. Andre was a huge box office attraction in the U S back in the seventies. And uh, I think everybody remembers all the great business he did at WrestleMania three and Gonzalez says that, uh, or Meltzer would say that Gonzalez was actually signed two months ago, but it was kept hush hush because the NWA feared embarrassment in case the guy never progressed to the point where he could wrestle. And apparently those close to the organization are upset that this story was ever leaked to the newspaper, but he comes in a three-year deal and he's brought to uh, Florida to train with hero Matsuda. And is going to be doing a little bit of training in Virginia with Luthez. Both her deals. Her was a big Luthez mark and had a relationship with him for the days in St. Louis, uh, you know, loose St. Louis native. And worked for Sam Metzik there for the, the head honcho of the NWA and a promoter in St. Louis. So Lou was a favorite, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Lou has been a favorite of somebody. It's a good thing. Uh, but we, we tried to get George the best, uh, training, you know, Matt Suda trained Hulk. Uh, and of course the Luthez is Luthez. So we, we tried to get him the, uh, the best training we could. The thing about George was my idea was this. If we could get him passable in the ring where he could do three or four things well, then he would be what we would say a, an attraction wrestler. You'd see him uh, sporadically. He would not be on TV every week. He would be on TV uh, on a special occasion. He'd be somebody's tag team partner. Uh, he'd be somebody's uh, heater, whatever the case may be. But George never got the aptitude. He didn't have the aptitude. And I don't know that quite frankly, when we, when we got him under contract, uh, the poor bastard was broke and he didn't have his family, didn't have any money. And that's kind of how it ended for him. I'm sadly to say, uh, but he, he's, he sent it, he was sending all the money, most of the money he was making, uh, back home to his family, even in that era. So it's just, he just didn't have it, but we didn't know if he was going to have it until we started the process. And, but you can't coach that size. So if nothing else, we get into three or four things that I mentioned, that the big man's spots, boot, leg drop, clothesline, whatever, uh, slam, but three or four things. And then I learn how to sell because all you gotta do is learn how to get your eyes raked and stagger around with your eyes. You know, you're, you got a temporarily blinded, uh, but it just didn't work out for George. We, we tried, we really did. And he was kind of, you get oohs and ahs. 
but we made him kind of a cartoon character. And then when he went to WWF at that time, they made him an even bigger cartoon character, but putting that body suit that had the, the ads uh, penciled in. I think I need to get me one of those suits. That's what I ought to do. Ads, the one's got the ads on a shirt. That's pretty cool. Uh, but George Stimber made it. And I know that the end of his run, Conrad, this is people probably didn't have a clue about this. He was getting, when he went back home, he ran out of money and he not on drugs or women or booze or so, just feeding his family, extended family. And at, at the end of his run or end of his life, you'll never guess who was sending him money. Harvey Whippleman. Harvey Whippleman was taking his own money and sent it to George. So George and his family could eat. And Harvey told me that story once. And I did, I had no idea it was that bad, but at that point in time, this right after George passed away, Harvey told me about that. And I, I was shocked. And he said, yeah, I've been sending money for a year or two, whatever it was. It wasn't a lot of money, but it's enough money to get him buying some groceries. And it's sad how that stuff ends, but we had all the best intentions of getting uh, George. And we didn't realize George is such a poor athlete. George couldn't run. George had his bad feet. He didn't have the balance. And ironically, Dusty thought he was going to make it too, because George is a pretty good dancer. So we thought, well, he's got good, his feet are okay. But when he got in the ring, he, he froze up, he was uncomfortable and he didn't want to look bad. He didn't want to look bad, especially with the ladies. George is kind of a ladies man. He didn't want to look bad, but he just never got over the hump. I, I've always felt bad about that, but I still do it all over again. I still encourage those guys to do it because if we could build our own Andre to sell our version thereof, uh, we might be okay. Fascinating to hear how this all came together. You know, Meltzer would write the hope as he could debut and be a last minute surprise at the NWA's February pay-per-view show. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely a crapshoot yep. one, one that, you know, ultimately <laughs> didn't work out, but, uh, I, I totally get why you guys took a stab at him. I mean, the WWE has done this for years. I know people look back and they're critical of the decision to try anything with him, but I mean, Lord, WWE did it with a ton of big guys, including the great Kali. So it's not uncommon that in wrestling, you're going to go look for uh freakishly big guys. Uh, Kali, uh, well, let's put it this way. The giant Gonzalez would make Kali look like Terry, Terry Funk. He's a bad, he was bad. And I, I, I remember working on with him one day. I told the story before like about doing a promo. I said, here's some lines for you. Think about this, put in a conversation, blah, blah, blah. And so we, we, we were recording some promos and you know, here comes George to do his thing and see, see, see he got this thing. Uh, and he says, his, his whole promo is this Rick Flair, I kill you. Okay, George, let's try that again. You're the good guy, George. You're not the bad guy. You're not mean. You're happy. You're smiling. And why would you want to kill somebody? We don't kill people here. So he didn't get it. So I, I felt bad for him and he, he died real early and young and sad ending to what we thought we hoped at the beginning of the process was going to be uh, a happy story. Let's talk about the booking committee. Meltzer would say the current booking committee here is Rick Flair as head booker with Kevin Sullivan, Jim Cornette and Ole Anderson serving as assistants. And he says there was talk of adding some or all of the following Jim Hurd, Jim Barnett, Jim Ross, and Terry Funk. So, uh, 
There's already one gym on the booking committee. There's talk that they'll add three more gyms and a Terry Funk. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that terrible? Uh, it was a cluster. It was, uh, it was, a you know, no disrespect in the guys you just mentioned whatsoever, but we didn't have leadership. You know, this is these, these kind of meetings and this direction needs to be, uh, overseen by the boss and Mr. Hurd was the boss and the, but the booking meetings are somewhat, uh, territorial, uh, the, the booking guys, including myself at times were very defiant because we knew, for example, uh, if you, if you're, if they're telling us that we're going to, we're going to take flair out of the spotlight and put Luger and or sting in it. Uh, obviously those that have wrestling sense, wrestling IQ know that's the wrong thing to do. So sometimes that whole group would be very defiant and, and, and rightfully so, but we still didn't, you know, it still wasn't the right way to communicate. But nonetheless, uh, I think that the bookie committee kept growing and had several lives and several incarnations, but it was a, uh, I say the same thing, same, and we had the same thing at AEW, which I'm such, I, I am so pleasantly surprised. One of my biggest fears, uh, going to AEW was that the, uh, a lot of the top talent are all EVPs and they're going to be deciding the fate and direction of a lot of talent. And sometimes, uh, talents taking orders from other active talents doesn't work out real well. Now I will tell you this situation, AEW right now has been phenomenal. Uh, talents are communicated with, they get this, they have input, they have real input, not just lip service bullshit, but they have, they have input. They lie, they line out matches. They line, you know, Jerry, you think anybody books Jericho stuff, Jericho's concept, that promo they had last week was all his. And then. He let the guys that had lines come up with their own lines. Like when Sammy G said that Jericho was the youngest AEW champion in history. That's funny. So, uh, we, that's a different ball game there, but normally, uh, paranoia is, was running rampant in WCW at that time anyway. So then you add that element of, well, this guy's, is he going to book himself on top or is he going to book his buddy on top or what, what's going on here? What's it mean to me? And so I think there was a little bit of unrest in that situation. So it was always chaotic uh, in that regard. And, and I, not real pleasant going to work sometimes. How did the, um, you know, you said this group needed leadership, you know, I know what that means. Rick Flair, uh, he, I don't know if he's ever been diagnosed, but Rick Flair is easily distracted. It's almost as if Rick <laughs> Flair has, uh, well. Some sort of attention deficit disorder could be Kevin Sullivan and Jim Cornette and only Anderson had all booked sort of their own territories for years. We know Kevin Sullivan, uh, booked a lot in Florida. And then obviously when the NWO gets hot, he's responsible for booking a lot of the heat. Cornette would not only, you know, help, you know, book this and the WWF, but he also ran his own outfit with Smoky mountain. Of course, Ole Anderson had points and territories as well is the lack of direction, all Ric Flair and his, no, life. no, 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 no. You're right though. Conrad Rick has a short attention span. He's, he's easily diverted. Uh, and, uh, he has a lot of interests and he has, and, and a lot of those guys that were full-time wrestlers that had never really been in an administrative role. You know, Rick had never been a booker. If he had, I'm missing a short time someplace, maybe. 
Uh, I don't recall it, but it, it was not a good fit for him. Uh, you know, he's, you know, John Wayne didn't have to write his own movies. John Wayne didn't have to, John Wayne was just giving the ball, put him on a horse, give him a gun. Let's go. And that's kind of how I looked at Dates. You got to get him on a hot angle, get him something great that he can talk about and then, uh, and let it roll. But I, I, uh, uh, it was the herd thing. You can't have, you can't have no meetings with your booking committee to find out where the direction is going to go. Where are you going? What do you guys, and here's how you do it. I think we were doing like three or four pay-per-views a year or, or you just go to a big show, a clash. Okay. Or get your next big show. What are you going to do for the next big show? How are we going to build the pay-per-view so we can generate more revenue, which we desperately need. And uh, those meetings don't, I don't know if those meetings occurred. If they were, they weren't very defined. So that's the issue about the leadership. And, and, but I will say, uh, you got some strong personalities there with Cornette and, and, and Sully, Oli, strong personalities. And, uh, you know, sometimes everybody had strong ideas of things that they want to do their way. So everybody would kind of pick a cause, but it seemed like we had, we had several different moving parts on the booking committee, but I, not, I didn't sense maybe a lot of cohesion and, and, uh, you know, it just seemed like everybody had, it's okay. So if I don't get my idea passed on that deal, I'll do this. And, uh, it just was not a good scenario. We had too many cooks in the kitchen, real simple. And so we diluted what knowledge that we had and we weren't getting any help from the home office. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Let's talk about Kevin Sullivan. Meltzer would say that he did color with you at the TV tapings at center stage on November 16th. Meltzer says he was told it was a tryout for Sullivan and either he or Michael Hayes would wind up with the spot and he would continue. It was felt if Cornette continued that it would make it harder for him to get fans to boo him since he's only on Fridays. They may do a Louisville, Louisville slugger segment weekly on Saturday. Uh, what do you think? I mean, obviously we know you did a lot of work with Michael Hayes. what did you think of Kevin Sullivan as an announcer? Very underrated, very underrated, sharp quit, thoroughly understood the business. And because he was involved in the, in the strategy sessions in the booking committee, he knew where we were going. I, I was pleasantly surprised because I was thinking, you know, Kevin's most prominent, uh, character was the, the Satan guy, you know, the, I don't say Satan worshiper. That's not accurate, but you know, the, uh, I know Rick called him the devil all the time. That's his nickname, the devil still does. But yeah. So, you know, it's, we, we just, uh, I don't know. I, I, I Kevin did good. I, and I didn't know if he was going to be a heel and get himself over or get his buddies on the book committee over only. No, he was very fair. Uh, and I thought he did a hell of a good job. I've said this before. I was so lucky in that time in WCW because I did shows with funk. I did shows with Cornette. I did shows with Sullivan. Uh, like, thank God I didn't do any with Ole. Uh, uh, so 
and other guys down there, Bob Cotley, all those guys, we had a plethora of really good color guys. So, uh, and Kevin was right there in that group. He did a good job and I enjoyed working with him. I, st I still, he's still got a great mind and he, somebody should use him. He's, he's sharp and he's got great street smarts and he understands the product. Why don't you think Kevin Sullivan is booking somewhere? I, there's a, well, uh, there's a couple of things. It might be, I don't know for sure. There are a couple of things that might be. The residual effects of his Satan thing. People think that he was a Satan worshiper. He was an altar boy. Wait, he's wait. very. He's, Hang on. You know, Do you think people really think he was the devil? They think. They think no. They think the image uh, that he projected was based in some loose form of truth. That so, somewhere in his pack background, he actually believed he was like an atheist, and he's he he loved and he he'd like to talk about. Uh, the devil and all these satanic things. And they didn't get, he was working. That was a gimmick. That was a gimmick. But I'll tell hey, you, you, you're, it's incredulous that somebody was I'm saying this to you. You're, you're not believing me. I know that I can tell that right now. Oh, you don't believe me. But the deal is Conrad, the naivete and WCW in that era was amazing. You just wouldn't believe how amazing it was. People so naive with a lack of product knowledge. But I think there's, that's one reason. It's not the reason. The reason is his age. Uh, you know, I'm 67. I think Kevin's a little older than me. So, uh, and the age grabs bites people in the ass nowadays. So, uh, and we found out our, our defiant audience, the young audience, 18 to 49, a lot of those young men, uh, are, they're impatient and they don't trust us older guys. They just don't. And I see it every day online. It's just, it's the way it is. Well, I hope he lands somewhere if he wants to. I mean, he's sharp, man. As you said, such a great mind for the business. It's just weird with all these wrestling companies popping up that he's not doing more. Let's talk about the road warriors. Uh, in this era, they agreed to return for their option year of their contract. So now it's confirmed. They're going to be with the NWA through December 9th, 1990. Uh, Meltzer would say, from what I'm told, the terms are same as last year, which is $2,000 per match for each warrior and $1,100 for Paul Ellering and 250 dates per year, which means they'll trail probably only Flair and Hogan as the highest paid wrestlers in North America. And there had been talk that the warriors wouldn't renew for their option year. So this is an incredible amount of money, uh, for essentially one act. I mean, I know we're saying. You know, you did the quick math at home and you think, well, that's just half a million, but that's a million each I mean, or, or for the tag team. And that's before you categorize, you know, what, uh, Ellering's going to be, which is two, uh, 275,000. So well, it's five grand a night for the team. Yeah. Two, two for Hawk, two for animal and a grand for Paul. That's $5,000 a night. Uh, and that's a lot of money when you're not drawing it. Uh, so that was that center. And we didn't book the road warriors. If you, if road warriors, we didn't book them. Well, I don't know. Who, I don't know how many people really booked them. Well, because when you have a team that can't lose, it eliminates half your drama. And the only way they lost was either get disqualified or counted out. And that was allegedly to protect them, protect them from fucking what? If you're a good enough worker, you can work and lose occasionally. If it's done the right way and come out on the other side in pretty good shape. Uh, I can tell you that Terry Funk lost a lot of matches for us. 
uh, and he never he kept he was hotter at the end than he was uh, when he when he did the angle with Flair in Nashville. So uh, I I think that uh, I just think that the that money was a lot of money. Hey, I don't need little anybody for making their money, but for we didn't. That was a that, that's another stupid decision. Why would we pay guys five thousand dollars a night when we're not drawing? So I and and we're not booking them right. Well, you know, well we'll we'll just throw that. I would do a DQ. The teams we had there would do. Skyscrapers and some of those cats, you could they could beat the Road Warriors and people would believe it, and they would understand it. And at the end of the day, when you're doing your booking, the Road Warriors are going to be your 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 stalwart babyface team. So what happens at the end of the program? The babyfaces go over. Gosh, it just seems so simple. But we made it hard. We made it difficult. And a lot of the talents are, uh, you know, when they saw their book with the, with the LOD, they know a. We're not, we're going to make half or less than that of this match. If it doesn't draw, then they're going to make, and we can't beat them. Let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about the clash of the champions. We're finally here. And, um, to set up tonight's, I quit non-title main event. The opening video is going to recap promos from Terry Funk, where he states he no longer cares about taking the world heavyweight championship title from Ric Flair. Because now what he wants is to take Ric Flair's pride. And in response, the nature boy talks about pride, integrity, and guts. And man, we're setting the pace right at the top of the show for our main event. That's one of the things I think this show did really, really well is it reminded you the entire show. Stay tuned. Here's what's coming up in our main event. And the anticipation just built and built. Yeah. Good story to tell. And one of the reasons announcers uh, tell better stories on some matches than others, some reasons, some reason that I do better on some matches than others is because I have a more vested interest in the matches that, uh, uh, I like, and that may be a, a, a sore spot for people. It's going to probably be a Ross says he didn't do as well as the match he didn't like. I, I, some product is new to me. I, I'm learning, man. Uh, I don't, and I don't have any ego issues saying at my stage of life and my stage of the game and being in three halls of fame, I, I have got no issues saying I'm still learning on the job. And I, if, if you're not learning, man, you're, if you're not growing, you're dying. I'm not going to get in my comfort zone. So, ah, remember that, remember that call I made in 98 with Foley and Undertaker? Let's just do that one tonight. Bullshit. So I think that, uh, that match is so emotional, so easy to sell and get invested in because I understood the characters better. I understood, uh, the, what they were doing, what they're trying to get done. And so sometimes in today's world with AEW, we got some of these young kids that are very, uh, high spot oriented. And I've got to do a better job of recognizing some of those scenarios because I really don't believe in it. Quite frankly, if you don't give me time to put you over and you have a great offensive move and it's amazing, it's breathtaking. And then you're up to do something right away again. I can't put you over. There's no time. Like we're documenting what we're seeing. We have no time. You don't, you don't, you're not selling long enough for us to put you over. It's a cadence folks. It's, it's like a song. So, uh, the flair and funk, man, they checked, they checked every box, everything they both said made sense was logical. And then they went out and did their thing. And of course, uh, uh, they were, that, that was a hardcore match too. You know, they're out all the damn arena, but that was my theory on that deal. I, I just, I, I thought that was a great story to tell. They gave us plenty of ammunition. And, uh, 
So for Gordon, I didn't have to worry with Gordon. I didn't have to worry Gordon with any other storyline. He didn't need to know about the cornet and the dynamic dudes and the Midnight Express, for example. Uh, he could call what was there, and he he would he would I would feed him things. That's what play by play guys do to their, to their people. Uh, but he 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 didn't have to worry about. He had one story to get over, Gordon, and that was Funk and Flair. Let's get going on the card here. The Freebirds are going to beat the Road Warriors by DQ, five minutes and eighteen seconds. Originally, the match is billed for the NWA Tag Titles, but the Birds drop the titles to the Steiners on November first in Atlanta. But the match doesn't air on television until November 18th. And everyone had expected they would take the WWF route and pretend the belts hadn't changed hands until the change was viewed on TV. Thus, the Freebirds will come out with the belts and be announced as champions. Instead, they made an attempt to both hide the result of the match that still hadn't aired on TV, but still not lie and build the Birds as champions. So the Birds didn't come out with the belts, nor were they acknowledged as champs. The graphic during their intro listing them with champs was a mistake, but the subject of the belts was never brought up on commentary. And of course, as you could imagine, this was not a great match. Meltzer would say it was a cold crowd that had decent pacing and bad timing too short to really develop into anything with a God awful finish. Where yeah. Animal was thrown over the top rope behind the referee's back. Hawk was brawling in the ring and tossed down Tommy young. And there's your DQ. What do you make of the shenanigans around the hokey pokey with the world tag team titles here? Well, it's weak. It's we, 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 uh, de-emphasized it. We watered it down. We had indecisive booking. It's the same thing we mentioned earlier, uh, about, uh, Hawk and animal making, you know, their, their package of Paul making five G's a night. Good for them. There's no, I'm not angry. I'm not angry at anybody, but I'm certainly not angry at guys making more money. But the thing about it is it came with, it came with this uh, stigma or what or better, maybe a better word you can f- provide yourself that you, you can't beat them. And if ever you're going to put heat on the heel team, like the birds, you let them screw and beat the LOD. Can you imagine Michael Hayes' promos? If, uh, if the birds beat the LOD, it's a, it's a, it's a, re- it's a return dream match. It'll help the house shows. You can build to the blow off on a pay-per-view just about all kinds of sense. But what we did, we didn't help the birds. We didn't help the tag titles and we damn sure didn't help the, the uh, LOD. It was lame, but it was, it was uh, booking uh, this lousy booking, but only because this, that was what the option we had was to get a DQ or a count out. And that's what pisses me off about that situation. If a talent is too good to lose, I have to have that explained to me. If you are that poor a worker, you have that little confidence in your, in your own ability. I remember Leroy McGurk told me in 1974, told a guy this on the phone. I was listening. I was sitting there taking notes because Leroy was blind. As we know, uh, it's 74 or five. This guy says, well, you know, he had not speak from Leroy. He said, uh, top, uh, top heel said, well, you know, Leroy, I don't like to lose. I don't lose much. And so, uh, Leroy said to him profound, this prophetic words. If you have a problem losing, I'm probably going to have a problem with you winning. So let's just not do this right now and revisit you coming in at a later time. They hung up the phone. Leroy said, I'm never going to book that guy because he got to be able to book the talent in all in ways that it's good for the product and having a guy that never loses. And then when he does take a loss, it's a count out or a DQ. 
it, you, you're killing your investment. And so I learned that in the seventies. It's still true then in the eighties. And as a matter of fact, it's still true now. Let's talk about the next match, but before we do, let's acknowledge that Bill after comes out and gives sting the most popular wrestler award. And he gives Ric Flair, the pro wrestling illustrated wrestler of the decade award. And they're saying the sting award was supposedly based on uh, fan response. And typically when you see a, a big trophy presentation like this, it's going to lead to someone coming out and smashing the trophy that does not happen here. And I know that Meltzer was sort of critical of this and said that flair looked totally stressed out, but I kind of liked this segment. I thought it was uh, a nice little break in the action. And as yep. a kid, especially I dug it. What'd you think? I didn't have a problem with it. You know, at that time, uh, you know, Bill after was known as, uh, the mag, you know, the after mags and he had, he had good name identity. Uh, two of our guys are getting, uh, awards from, a you know, the number one wrestling magazine in the world at that time, maybe still is a PWI, uh, pro wrestling illustrator did always did a good job. So it was like getting, a uh, the sports illustrated uh, sportsman of the year type thing. It had credibility. And so I thought it was fine. I, it didn't go too long. It's, I thought it was a nice, like you is a nice little break in the action. And well, next up, we got more action. It's going to be uh, doom getting a win over Tommy rich and Eddie Gilbert. I guess we should mention there was a, a segment with Robin green, who we know is woman in a hotel room style setting. And, uh, she's going to be the manager of a new mass tag team, which we're going to see here. Doom and Gordon had the line here. He says, I'll tell you something, Jim, she's an evil person, but she sure is pretty. <laughs> yeah, he was, she was pretty. She got a nice person too. God bless her. Uh, yeah. See, Gordon liked that. Again, people, like we talked about, we first started our conversation here today, you know, where Melser, there's a, a, a difference in semantics, but the, forcing Gordon to be the, the color, forcing Gordon away from this normal play-by-play thing. He was a lot younger then, uh, and he was drinking more, and he, he, he was, his issue was, Conrad, I don't know if I can hold up for two hours. And that was where was our concern. So I took the heavy lifting. I did the play by play. I started segments. I ended the segments. No problem. I was happy to do it, but it, it took a lot of pressure off him. And that way he came up the line like that one that was kind of unsolely like, so, uh, I, I, it's a lot of little, little caveats. And if you go back and watch the show folks, which I strongly recommend that you do listen to some of Gordon's one-liners, they're better than you imagine. So doom get the win five minutes, 15 seconds over Tommy rich and Eddie Gilbert. Meltzer would say the lack of heat made it seem like a dead match. Although everyone was trying and the pacing was decent. The finish would see Simmons hit rich with a clothesline off the middle rope. And then Reed would help him up star in a quarter. And then we got this Louisville slugger segment that we had alluded to with Jim Cornette interviewing the Steiner brothers and Meltzer would say, this was the best thing on the show so far because Rick Steiner cracked him up. It says the only significant thing out of this is they name the move that Scott Steiner does where he does the flying head scissors forward and spins the guy over in midair. They're calling it the Frankensteiner. So this is the, uh, the show where it's that move is officially named, which I guess is a nice little bit of trivia. Yeah. I think I'm not sure. I want to say that was Cornette's idea. I might be wrong on that, but, uh, I'm, I'm if I had to gamble, I'd, I'd put my money on. Cornette coming up with that, uh, the name of that move. And it was, a, it was a, 
it was sensational. And it was also a finish. Now it's a high spot. You do the math. When Cornette would mention the feud with doom and woman, Rick would claim that he had her and he doesn't want her. And you know, the backstory of that, we've talked about it recently here on the show. Next up, we've got the midnight express beating the dynamic dudes in nine minutes and 22 seconds. When Cornette who had stayed neutral, the entire match hit Douglas with the tennis racket and then Eaton pinned him. Meltzer would say that Eaton had dropped 35 pounds since his return and now looked small, but he was moving like the old Bobby Eaton. He said fans were, uh, cold, uh, but the match was heated by the end. And, uh, he gave it three and a half stars. He says the fans were behind the midnights all the way, even though they were playing the heels. I don't know who that says more about though, but this match was pretty good, but there is so much hatred from the fans. They are just turned off by the white meat baby face dynamic dudes. Are they not? Oh, it's just look, Cornette and his guys made that match three and three and a quarter stars. Where he said, uh, we never got my brainchild of the skateboard guys over. They just, you know, and I, it sounds of course, you know, what JR is knocking Lauren Nidus again. I'm not knocking him. China was not blessed with great charisma. Fundamentally sound Dean Douglas or Shane Douglas was the star of that, that team, but we never got them over. And if you can't get over folks working with the midnight express and Cornette, you might want to check your whole card. Let's keep it moving here. Um, oh, before we do, I do want to mention Jim had said that I guess around this time, late 89, Eaton lane and Cornette were all offered substantially less money by Jim Hurd. Despite drawing big houses for their matches the prior year, they're not really, I guess, what Hurd sees as top stars. And maybe he thinks they're too small to make the big salaries. Or how do you sort of rationalize all that in your mind where the Road Warriors are being grossly overpaid, but we're going to underpay the Midnights? How do I explain it? There, there is no explanation. It's stupid. Again, you, you got We didn't have a boss that recognized the talent. We didn't have a head honcho managing the division. I each him heard that recognized the value of great talent and what they could bring to the table. And because, uh, Dennis and, uh, Bobby, even including when Stan was in that group, Stan Lane. They're not going to wow you with their physiques. They're in good shape. They're athletic. They look like athletes, but they're not going to turn your head like, uh, you know, some big bodybuilders. Uh, so they didn't look like the, the WCW wanted the direction they wanted to go. And Cornette was perceived by some, which I find this to be amazingly ironic for a goddamn network that earned their stripes playing Andy Griffith shows, John Wayne movies and Atlanta Braves baseball. To say Cornette was too Southern is, I mean, one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. Uh, so I, uh, yeah, you had arguably as good a manager as there ever was in Cornette in his prime right there. He is. And, uh, you just, they just, they got on her shit list. And I think some of that probably was the fact that Cornette would speak up, uh, and he would say what's on his mind sometimes Ill, ill-timed, but nonetheless, he was honest. He was up front. What he, what he believed, whether it's right or wrong, it's what he believed. 
And I think it rubbed Herb the wrong way. And because when Herb would try to rebut, Cornette had an answer for every, every, uh, you know, everything that Herb would say. He had the, he had the counter and it pissed Herb off. Next up your boy, Dr. Death, Steve Williams is going to pin the super destroyer, which is actually Jack victory in one minute and 41 seconds with the Oklahoma stampede star and a half. Um, I guess it is what it is, but this also gives them a chance to use Norman, the lunatic who is apparently here without a purpose. Norman's going to come out in a Santa Claus outfit and give Williams a teddy bear uh, for a short squash. Meltzer would say this was good action and served its purpose. And that's definitely what it was. Uh, but it was probably cool for you to see your old pal in, in top form here again this week, huh? Yeah. Young and healthy. Not like the last time I saw him, his body was ravaged with cancer. When I spoke at his funeral, I didn't even recognize him. Uh, just a shatter shatters. The image shatters. But yeah, it was great. And uh, it, I want to tell you something too. Jack victory is one of the most underrated guys around and has been in my view that way for years. He everywhere he was every character that he was, uh, he was booked as or book with the team, whatever it may be. He did his job. He's like Belichick says about the, his team, do your job. And he did his job as well as anybody we had fundamentally sound, six, three, six, four guy, you know, cowboy loved it because he could, he could do multiple things. He was a very good heel, a wrestling heel. Uh, so I, uh, I, I liked that match for what it was, you know, it was what it was, but, uh, doc looked good that in that one. And a lot of that's because he had a dancing partner in Jack victory that knew how to make him look good. Uh, let's keep it moving here. The next match is, uh, two of my absolute favorite tag teams, Rick and Scott Steiner taking on the skyscrapers. It's going to be a DQ in six minutes and change when doom does a run in. Rick is in the stands pretending to be a popcorn vendor when Scott comes to the ring by himself. And then eventually Rick comes in and Rick is German suplexing Spivey and clotheslining him over the top. Eventually Spivey comes back with a tombstone and then they do the hot tag to Scott who gets the Frankensteiner on Spivey and uses the blockbuster suplex on vicious, uh, really, really good stuff. More suplexes banging into the guardrails, a lot of hot action. And then doom come in with woman. Woman hits Rick with a high heel shoe, but Rick doesn't sell it. And he's about to go after her when all of a sudden a seven foot unknown guy jumps into the ring. It looks like he's going to be, uh, serving as woman's bodyguard. And when he's in there brawling, the road warriors come in and that sort of evens things up a little more. And they go to a commercial break. This seven footer, by the way, is not George Gonzalez. Hmm. It's a guy who would be known as Tyler Maine. Uh, who I believe was, uh, six foot eight, I think uh, he was tall. I know that he was a tall guy and you can tell right there. We're reaching, we're reaching and making ridiculous decisions. You bring a new guy in that can't work to any large degree and all due respect to the seven footer, uh, Canadian fellow, I believe, uh, and we're trying to bust the midnight express confidence, uh, and bust their pay down to where it's, you know, ham and egger pay. So those, those are the decisions we're making. So you can understand why a many of us on the booking committee and the, and their, and the, the confines of the booking committee were so goddamn frustrated. And that's why we all drank so much. You're going to forget today's booking meeting. 
So I, I, that was it was hodgepodge booking. It was trying to put too many people in the situation. Because here's the deal. Let's say you put the skyscrapers in a big match against their LOD. Do you know what's going to happen? I can tell you what's not going to happen. You're not going to pin the LOD. So it's anticlimactic. So we're, we're, we're like a dog chasing our tail. We're in a system that's not going to win for us. And we're, we're grasping at straws that maybe somebody of these people we're bringing in will get over. It, because there was an overreaction that we had talents that weren't over. I'll take Tully and Arn and Flair, uh, Luger and Sting. All those, we, had, we had great talent. Steiners, good God, man. So there wasn't a ta- it wasn't an issue that we didn't have the talent to do well. We just we had creative clumsiness, and we had a chief, a guy, a chief, the head of the division that just uh, God bless him, just didn't know. He just didn't know what he had, and he was influenced by other people. And heard talked to a lot of people outside the company, and getting all he had a lot of people in his ear. Uh, I know it, I, I think he talked to Steve Beverly a lot. I think he talked to uh, Meltzer some. I think. So he had a lot of people influencing him or at least giving him ideas. And so when he got so many ideas, he couldn't process them because he didn't know he didn't have the tools to do it. So it was a, it was a, how we stayed in business as long as it did at that point in time is, is beyond me. And then, then her got replaced. All right. Next up quite a rematch from Halloween havoc two weeks prior, Lex Luger and Brian Pillman. And somehow this match is even better than their match in Philadelphia two weeks prior, which we just recently covered. It's still rough in spots, according to Meltzer, but they worked hard enough and stiff enough and fast enough to where it didn't hurt the match. And Meltzer would say Pillman did a little less flying than usual because of his bad knee. Instead, he concentrated on flare-like chops and flying moves where the brunt of the bump would be on his back rather than his knees. Luger's chest is all welted up from the chops. He's going to do a couple of press slams, including one where he dropped Pillman behind him. And after a ref bump, Pillman scores twice with cradles and had Luger down for a count, but there's no ref there to count. And then Lex would get a chair and absolutely clobber Pillman with it and get the pin. And after the match, he hit him in the back with the chair twice before putting him in the torture rack. And that brings in sting to make the save. who ends up slapping Luger in the face before Luger finally bails out. And Meltzer would say, even with the execution problem, the match was awesome. Three and three quarter stars. This to me is maybe some of the best stuff WCW was doing at the time. I love the sting and uh, uh, Luger interaction. I was a big Brian Pillman fan and it felt like Pillman was doing his best Ric Flair impression, getting a great match out of, out of Lex two weeks in a row. Absolutely. And, uh, uh, Brian rose Lex's performance level. Brian was going to beat the shit out of you. He was going to chop you and chop you. A la the nature, he was going to, his clotheslines were going to be snug. He was going to wrestle at a very fast pace that he would dictate. So I think he brought the best out in Lex because, uh, Brian didn't play politics. Brian didn't care. He didn't care that Luger may be the guy someday. He's going to go out there and have a hell of a wrestling match. Cause it's kind of pride that Brian had. And you can't make an all be all American nose tackle in, in division one football at two twenty five and not be a tough bastard. So he brought the best out in Lex. Quite frankly, of those that scenario, I thought that uh, Pillman was the star of the match, and I thought that Pillman was the star of the match in a lot of matches he was in, which is doubly heartbreaking when he when he got his ankle broken, had to be fused. It broke his heart, broke his ankle, and it ruined his career. So, uh, but he was those matches, folks. We all, you hear us all talk about Brian Pillman. 
Uh, and I loved him. You all know that I'm partial, but that gun, man, if you watch that match, you're going to see how much better you're going to say, I didn't know Lex Luger was that good because Brian Pillman was that good. Uh, I love that, that pairing and, and Brian did, uh, did good things for Lex in that regard. But, uh, we, we, again, we're, we're trying to bring in talents that we don't know. We're trying to get rid of talents that we do know that are great. When we've got great young talents right under our, under our nose, like Brian Pillman, who probably was around 30 at that time, maybe a little younger, a little somewhere in that neighborhood. So golly, man, we, we had talent. It just was, it was poorly managed. No, uh, let's talk about our main event. If you're going to watch one match this week, I don't give a shit what it is. It should be this one. Uh, it's going to be better than anything else you see on TV this week or on the WWE network. It's one of a kind. It's an all time. Great. It is five stars in the observer. And this is probably back when he was only giving five stars. In fact, I know it is, but this probably deserved more. It's an I quit match that goes 18 minutes and 38 seconds. You're going to see Ric Flair and Terry Funk. Like you've never seen them before. They're brawling all over the place the entire way. And let's not forget this feud got kicked off in May in Nashville when Terry Funk tried to give Ric Flair a pile driver through a table. And we're really going to turn the volume up here with the usage of a mic inside the ring, putting the, the, the competitors on the spot. Do you quit? They have to say, I quit. And the effect of the mic, according to Meltzer was so great that this match had more intensity than any United States match in a long time. He would say that Flair was his usual self, which is to say the best wrestler of this and maybe any era, but this yep. was Funk's night and he outshined everyone. His intensity, mic work and bumps stole the entire show. They didn't have the number of great moves and athletic spots that your normal match of the year candidate, nor was it your typical brawl. In fact, it seemed far more brutal, even without a trace of juice highlights included Flair or Funk rather pile driving Flair on the floor. Flair twice tackling Funk on the floor and Flair whipping Funk into the outside ringside table. Funk sliding across the table and using it to uh, hit his head on a chair. And finally, Flair got Funk to say, I quit using the figure four leg lock. And that match, match, Funk went to shake hands with Flair as pre match hype had promised. And Meltzer would say, by the way, in an interview just before the match, Flair said that if he were to lose this match, he'd be through in this sport which was too late to mean anything as far as ratings, but it would have added another aspect to the match, except any fan thinking would know that Flair was going to win all along with Starcade ads, billing him in the tournament and not funk. Of course, Gary Hart tries to stop funk from shaking his hand. who then shakes Flair's hand and then Hart attacks funk from behind Flair would punch and chop Hart until the great Muda and Mr. J would attack Flair and sting would do his second run in. And then Flair would catch Muda in the Scorpion while Hart was hitting Funk in the knee in the branding iron. And then Lex Luger comes out for an encore appearance and hit Sting with a chair and then hit Flair with a chair. And the heels just went to town on the face uh, on the faces, leaving Flair, Sting and Funk all laid out flat in the ring. And then Luger goes to the backstage area, breaks Flair and Sting's trophies with a chair. And the last thing we see in the broadcast is Luger holding that broken trophy over his head. So not only is it a great match, it's a great post-match angle. Lots of mayhem. We see that Funk's not this bad guy after all, but we keep it going with Sting and Luger and Flair. It's good stuff, man. Great stuff. And if you're a student of booking, uh, you'll see some uh, 
compromise booking. We had way in the second half of the show, way too many run-ins, way too many run-ins. Uh, this, this, they, anytime, uh, somebody makes a run in after they've already been, uh, on TV earlier in the show, it's gotta be for a perfect reason. I don't think these are perfect reasons for all these guys to do the run-ins. Now, what you described at the end, Conrad, what, well, what Luger did at the end was money with well, money because he got heat on flair. He got heat on funk. He broke the trophies. Uh, you know, he was a big dick, uh, which is kind of what we were trying to do. And, and at that time of Lex's life, he was, it was easier for him to be a dick. So, uh, that was, that probably gave all of us the, the biggest hope that he could be that great, uh, uh, single heel in WCW that we could build around. But then, you know, as soon as you do that, then somebody in TBS management say, well, we really want a hero to be our top guy. We want to build around the hero. We want to, and what they really wanted, they wanted a Hulk Hogan, anything WWE, WWF at the time was doing somebody in, in, in Turner home entertainment, somebody in herd's ear would give him the idea. We should do this because they're doing that and we could do it better, but, but it won't be original by the way, but we can do it better. So, uh, that's kind of where we were with that Conrad. I, I thought that Luger's performance at the end. And again, uh, when you watch this thing back, folks, look at how Luger's chest looked because he got the, the living dog shit beat out of him by Brian Pillman. It was, if people, if people believe that stuff when you're physical, you, you lay it in, they believe what they're seeing is an actual fight. That's kind of the idea here, I think. So, uh, for our business. So I, I, I enjoyed the, the end of the show. I thought we had too many run-ins. Uh, too many guys are trying to make too many people happy. Uh, well, what about this? We how about that. Uh, I just didn't like that part of it. the run ins were bad, but this is the most fun show to date that I had ever worked on a pay-per-view. It was uh, that show in, uh, in Troy, uh, the, the flight up with Gordon, getting with Gordon heard said, now you got it. I was always given the, the credit or the, the, uh, warning that Gordon is your guy. So that meant that I had to keep up with Gordon while we were, in, we were in New York. And that means that, you know what I mean? You can't, you can't leave him alone to bar. So, uh, it was a interesting weekend travel babysitting, uh, you know, giving Gordon confidence that he could do this job cause he had no confidence whatsoever that he was going to be able to do it. And uh, so I was happy that we got that one in and, you know, I, I love Gordon. I, he taught me so much. He was a great influence for me. Uh, I remember working for Cowboy, and I, I, I started perfecting this Gordon Sully uh, impersonation, right? So I, 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 occasionally, I would get so wrapped up in my shit that I would, that would blend into my commentary. Boy, I got my ass shoot out big time one day. I said, God damn it, kid. If I want to hire Gordon Sully, I'll go hire him. Be yourself, please. Just be yourself. Don't be Gordon anymore. So I said, uh-uh, you got it. No, I didn't say that. I the balls. But, you know, really, it's... He was a big influence on me, his preparation, his storytelling. He did things that were plausible and he did things that were logical in his commentary. We are not allowed to do that right now because we see too many things in the ring, Conrad, bell to bell that are not logical at times. So it's a different presentation. It's a different mindset, but boy, it was a pleasure to work with him that night. And it's like anybody can identify what you do for a living folks. And you got to do do something you really enjoy doing with somebody that you're, there's a hero to you. 
you know what I'm saying here. It's just, it was just absolutely a memory that I can't, I can't uh, replicate. And I can't tell the fans how much it means to me to be able to go back and see this match for the first time since 1989 and, and watch it and, uh, remember the memories, remember the cocktails, remember they're getting dressed, remember how cold it was. It was cold in the building. Uh, and just being with Gordon that weekend was special to me. Well, we hope that this episode was special to you. One of the all time greatest matches ever Two icons in the ring, two icons on the call, go out of your way to watch it. You, you really cannot be disappointed with this. Match. It was a, it, sorry, Connor. It was a clinic. If you're a wrestler, watch it, listen to us. You know, one of our guys, I know a lot of WWE guys listen to the show and a lot of uh, expert, our boys at AEW do as well. And we appreciate everybody, no matter where they work, Ring of Honor, MLW, where it may be. We thank you. Uh, but this is a clinic, folks. If you're a talent and you want to see how guys sell and how they tie things together, remember, it's not all about the spots. It's more about connecting the dots. And Flair and Funk uh, connected every dot along the way, and they delivered a performance that all these years later, we're still talking about go out of your way to see it and go out of your way to join us next week, right here. Well, next Thursday and every Thursday, right here on Westwood one next week. It's all about survivor series, 1995. And boy, you want to talk about a tale of two shows. Watch these two back to back. Woo. Make you miss that <laughs> old school. We'll see you next week, right here on grilling JR with Jim Ross. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.